Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the discussion from our March UX event, where you'll hear from a panel of experts, which includes Sun Sneed, Ben Hunt, Emmy Southworth, John Grover, and Megan Fisher. Jared Spool summed up the importance of UX design maturity by stating, Organizations become more competitive when they deliver better designed products and services. To improve the design quality of these products and services, individual teams need to increase their own design maturity. Today's discussion will focus on growing that design maturity. A big thanks to Canopy Tax for hosting this meetup. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack where there's always lots of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now, let's hear the discussion on UX design maturity. Let's give our panel and our moderator a round of applause and we'll turn the time over to Ben. Can you guys hear me? <clears throat> Thanks, Mike. Um, all right, well, I'm Megan Fisher. I'm a senior product designer at Instructure and um, super excited about this topic. Um, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this awesome panel. Uh, so I was hoping that each of you could take a turn and do a short introduction, like a 30 second introduction. And Okay, well thank you. My name is Sun Sneed and this is the dreaded elevator pitch, who am I? <laughs> um, yeah, so my, my latest endeavor was I was working with Overstock, uh, heading up the UX team there. Uh, amazing team, really great people working there. If anybody ever comes and interviews with you, you should totally hire them. <laughs> Um, and before that, I worked uh, down here in Provo at ObservePoint in product. Product is my background. I've worked almost 15 years in product management roles from a junior product manager. I've done a lot of user research. Um, yeah, and now currently I'm consulting companies and I'm here and I'm happy to talk with all of you tonight and I'm excited for your questions and I'm super happy to be on such a great panel here. Thank you, Seth. Emmy? I'm Emmy. Um, I've been doing UX design, uh, I think we're going on 19 years, it's been a while. Um, I just took on a role as a senior product manager at Lendio, had an opportunity to um, run my own product line and build out a design and product team. Um, so I just, just started second day today. Um, I've been doing, as a UX director, building out teams, um, managing cross-functional teams for marketing, marketing design and product design. Uh, building out large teams that are across the across the world, um, manage teams across the United States and into the Middle East and India. Uh, so excited to be here and answer answer questions on growing your UX teams. I'm Ben. Um, I'm currently the VP of User Experience and Design at a company called Clarivine um, down in Provo, and before that, I was director of UX at. Vivint Solar, um, and basically building and advocating UX teams and UX processes is just kind of 
an awesome hobby. I don't want to call it a hobby, but you know, it's what I do for profession, but it's, you know, it's a thing that brings me a bunch of joy to be able to do that. I'm excited to talk amongst these guys and answer all these questions you have about that. Hi everyone, um, I'm John Grover. I am a senior product manager at WeWork. Um, before that, I've been there for four months. Before that, I was at grow.com, which is in this building, um, running the product UX team there. And then before that, I had a 13 years at InMoment, um, running the product and UX team there and, and building the UX team there. So um, I also had a wonderful opportunity with TJ Nelson in the back to uh, do a little kind of um, side project to see if we could build upon the Dev Mountain UX bootcamp. Um, and so we created a little bootcamp called Product Bound that we, we ran for a couple of years. And um, so I've always loved uh, teaching UX and being involved in UX, even though I actually come from a product manager background. Awesome, thanks guys. Um, so I thought maybe a good way to kick this off is if you guys could talk a little bit about what UX maturity means to you. Um, and then we can start taking some questions from the audience. Uh, I think it, it, it means to me the ability on, of an organization to make decisions on how they involve the design process in their, in their product organization, um, how they're involving UX designers, and also how they're deciding, um, how they're taking customer empathy and building it into their products. To me, that's, that's what UX maturity means. Maybe adding to that, I think this this is a great um, uh, definition. I'm about defining what UX actually means and does your company have a common understanding of what they mean when they talk about UX, right? When you go into your company, when you work um, and you ask them, what do you think a UX designer does or do we do UX and the answers are, Oh, those are the ones with the pixels. Oh, and, and oh yeah, we, we actually need to overhaul our website. I think we don't like the colors anymore. Then probably on a maturity scale, you're a little more in the beginning. When uh, then you start talking about, well, is it actually product or is it UX we're talking about? We actually had a good uh, discussion earlier about this. Um, and you talk about, do we understand our users? Do we ask our users? Do we know who our user is? Do we know who the target user is? And do we know what their problems are? Then on a maturity scale, you're probably far, farther ahead. And this is where, where you want to be. And it's not always easy. And um, the challenging thing at work is like we're not in a perfect world, right? And But that's what makes our jobs fun. And that, that's what you know drives me every day when I go to work or when I go and, and consult companies. And I feel like there might be something more here. I don't know. Do you feel like you want to add? So in a lot of the companies that I've been in, um, UX was either brand new um, or there was a process already in place, but it was kind of broken. And so for me, I feel like uh, design maturity is, is entering in at that beginning space where people, you like what you were saying, it's like, so you do graphic design, right? And then it's like, okay, I'll live with that for a moment, but then, it's continually pushing the boundary um, so that instead of being the you know pixel pusher, if you will, to a um, actually solving problems and and creating more meaningful designs at the same time, um, it's that entire process from entry level all the way up to fully integrated into the company, 
solving problems and having that seat at that table. I'll just add the last piece. I define UX maturity. If you look at a mature UX organization, they look at their UX process and their UX designers as a competitive advantage, and they give the time and resources necessary to perform at a high level. Great, thank you guys. <clears throat> um, so does anybody have any questions? Does anyone wanna kick this off? Sure. Um, ben, you just said something interesting, which was having a seat at the table. Uh, in my first couple of years as a product designer, I found myself saying that a lot. When I was the only designer, I was always like, why don't I have a seat at the table? Then we'd hire more designers, and then it was, why don't we have a seat at the table? And I noticed in my last few years, I'm less concerned about having a seat at the table, and more concerned about enabling others to feel like they have a seat at the table. Why does this come up so often? What do you think the root cause of that is, and, and how do you experience that? So the question is, uh, <laughs> this phrase, having a seat at the table, yeah. kind of why does this come up, and why is this important? Is that? Yeah, what's your, what's your experience with it? What's your experience with it? Um, okay, so, you know, unless you're uh, a real brand new startup that's already forward thinking, you are usually working for a company that has a top-down model, and they have to honor that kind of hierarchy of all, you know, your title actually means basically everything. Um, and so when I say the seat at the table, I'm saying you're part of the decision, you're, you're part of the core group that is making a decision for business, for the product, for whatever. And as depending on the company, you usually have to fight tooth and nail basically to get UX inside of that. Because like you were saying, once the UX maturity is, is finally there, they actually find value inside of that. And that's where you're really validated within that table. Now we can say it's figuratively like, oh, you know, you have you know, just figurative table sitting out there and we're all around it. You know, as UX and as I lead my UX team, I try not to leave anybody outside of that. I want to bring in my entire team. I want to bring in whoever else that I can that I feel like has valuable input and will actually create meaningful conversation instead of just saying, well, I'm here, I'm the boss, I'm going to make that final call. And it's up to us to be able to basically um, ha you know, have that input so that it doesn't get in that direction. So you can help persuade the product to where you know that it needs to go because you have the ears closest to the ground, you are working with customers, you are doing that research, um, and the, the decision makers, the boss guys, they're basically just listening to the chatter that's happening directly around them. And so it's extremely important for us make sure that we're pushing as hard as we can to get there. And you're right, you want to include you, you want to include everybody at that table, um, you know, your team, everybody, because everybody brings so much value to that, and it's up to you to advocate as much as you can for that. Uh, there was a recent survey done by Envision um, on their Design Co. site, and it uh, they kind of looked at the design process going in organizations, and they found that like the top performing companies um, only 5% of them had a representation, like a, a C-level for design. And you could correlate their, their revenues and success of product because they had elevated design to be forefront in the business. Like that drove business decisions. 
And then you had 41% of the companies that just didn't have any representation or, or save design to be kind of the lipstick on the pig type thing. Like you, you go paint the, paint the product after it's already built. So design was saved last. Uh, but the performance increased in the company when they could put design at the forefront. So you said 5%. 5%. So let me ask a question. How many of the companies that you work at, you do you feel, um, have a seat at the table? A UX has a seat at the table? Okay, so we're probably 5% or less. Um, so let me, I think, address the 95%. Because I don't want everyone to give up hope that the only way to increase your UX maturity is to have someone at the seat at the table. I think that's a surefire way of doing it. Um, I, uh, I'm a big advocate of intrapreneurs, um, and I define intrapreneur as somebody that is willing to go outside of the box that they have been tasked with and to go um, above their pay grade. Um, your title might be UX designer, it might be product manager, it might be you know junior UX researcher, um, but I think each one of us have the ability to go into our organizations and actually use the UX process that we talk about all the time um, and kind of meta, so this is kind of meta, use it internally. Um, UX is your product. Your internal stakeholders are your customers. Uh, have you empathized with them? What are their problems that they have? Have you helped define those problems for them? Have you helped ideate and figure out how UX can, can work with that? Working with um, other stakeholders that are not UX, educated in UX, and walking through the UX process, getting some good wins, small wins at first, can help you improve your UX maturity. Um, and hopefully one day you can get be that person that sits at the table. Um, or you can help influence getting somebody at that table. But I just wanted to speak to the 95% because um, a lot of organizations I haven't, I've worked in haven't had that. And so there are, there are other ways to get UX maturity. So the question is, what are some of the practical things that you've done? This is a great question because I was just going to, um, I was like, is there a burning question? Because I want to add something to what you just said. Because that's like the ideal state, right? This is the dream. We're the entrepreneurs and we're going out there and people are actually going to listen to us until you talk to that one product manager or that one boss or that one VP who just knows better. And he's going to drop or she's going to drop something on the whiteboard. And that's actually the solution for the customer, right? And so um, my most recent experience, and I'm incredibly grateful for having gone through, through that. And you can use this, tell this story, use stories, because that's how managers take, right? The, the chatter, the stories is what managers understand, what leaders understand. One of the stories I can give you today is... I was lucky and I got a seat at the table for UX and we, we always joked about like now UX has a voice, right? And I have a loud voice if you haven't noticed. <laughs> and so we got to we got to speak up and change the process a little bit. We started earlier and we would actually do the classical what you learn in school and what you do so well, which is empathize with the users and iterate, you know, try something, user test it, try it again, and then build it and, you know, save some of those really highly paid development resources and not just throw something out there and see if the spaghetti sticks. And we had a project and within six months, we actually drove our NPS up considerably, especially on that lever of design. It was like you could see that in the numbers. And this is something, you know, when you, 
when people, it's hard to, to um, go and convince a manager if you don't have numbers. So either you have a number from something that you've done in the past, or you can tell a story that you've either pulled off the internet or listened to on a QA panel. So yes, changing your process and including UX earlier and giving them, even if you don't give them a seat at the table, if you allow user experience design, if you allow user insights, if you allow user research, you can bring your NPS scores up, and if you measure your, your average value that you have for a customer per NPS score, you can actually prove out that those customers most likely are more valuable. This is what it was in our data. So if you can get your hands on data, if you can befriend analysts and get data, that will help you drive that entrepreneurial spirit. And that's something you can do in your day-to-day -day work. You probably have access to data or you have access to tools where you can do research. And then make sure you track. And eventually, in the end, we're always looking for dollars, right? So can you translate that into a profit? Can you translate that into a conversion that translates into revenue or sales? Or the less good number, but also money number, is less operational costs, right? Less mistakes you make after you developed it, because everything that's in the market is like 10 to 100 times more expensive to change than everything you change before you bring it out in the market. I was just thinking that as we talk like the seat at the table and making an impact, sometimes your seat is just on that product team, and that's the first place you should focus on making impact. Um, I, I love when I have like an executive come to me and say, okay, how can we, how can we have, have your team make greater impact? Because everything they touch turns to gold. And that's what I found is that when I can get my UX designers to just to focus on their own product teams, their own product, getting get that trust of the product manager, the developers, their product starts to grow and gain visibility within the company. And pretty soon the rest of the company is trying to pay attention, like, what's going on with this team? It's usually that, that design member that is facilitating the conversations and the, the progress of the team just simply by, by good UX practices. Um, and I, I love that point when I start getting more headcount and I can hire more people because the company wants that influence. Not that we need a seat at the executive table, but we need a seat at the product on the product teams. I really liked what you said about um, telling a story. I think that really, really helps. Um, I've lately tried to do more um, putting together a presentation anytime I'm working on a feature and telling that full story um, because we know it in our mind, but a lot of times the other people on the team that we're or the other teams that we're working with don't know the story. And if you can help them have the empathy and see the full picture, it's a lot more powerful. So I really like that point. Anything else? So how do you tell the story from the customer's perspective to the decision makers in the company? Uh, just simply, I found that recording your session and then clipping it, there's nothing more valuable than actually seeing and hearing the customer for themselves. I mean, even if you take a quote and write it up on a slide, it's not as impactful as hearing their voice and seeing their reaction. So if you can record a session um, and put that into your presentation, it can be very compelling. I've seen full presentations kind of stop and the whole executive team just focuses on that comment that the customer has. I think that having that type of impact like that, you know, um, we are, we have created a CAB, uh, Customer Advisory Board, and what that does is basically, it kind of, it kind of does twofold, right? So I'm 
going out and reaching out to a customer and I'm getting that feedback. They're voluntarily saying, yes, I want to be part of your product, right? But at the same time, I'm getting this wealth of knowledge on this feedback from some of our top tier clients or top tier customers that when I come back to my, um, to my boss or the CEO or whatever, and I can lay that down at the desk and say, this is where we hit the, you know, we hit the mark here and we totally missed the mark way over here, right? And that, just having just those numbers and saying, because then his brain instantly goes to how many dollars he wasted on that development or pushing that product or that marketing. Um, and at that point, then he's like, well, what should we have done different, right? It's like, I got an idea, right? Um, and so at that point, you're able to go back and, and start diving deeper with that customer feedback and getting um, more people involved. And then at the same time, the customer is feeling heard, they're feeling validated, you know, and when you invite them to a beta program is, hey, thanks for being a part of this cab, right? And then they're like, wow, you've actually listened to what we're trying to do. And then they go out and they tell their friends. And so it's just this massive cycle. So I think that getting either video or getting other areas that you can actually have proof and say, this isn't my opinion, this is coming from our customers. And I don't know who you deal with or whatever, but in my experience, the higher up, the customer, the value of that customer is for our company, the easier it is to get um, decisions made and decisions made faster according to the needs of the customer um, on that area. Um, I think if you can tie it into a couple different presentation points. So one, you want to hit analytics. So for someone that's very number driven, if they can correlate the customer comments back to maybe trends you're seeing in, in customer feedback or number of complaints coming in um, or revenue driven by your competitors, if you can tie it back to a number, then it starts to make a lot of sense to that, that number driven, maybe your CFO or someone else who's kind of putting the, the brakes on UX. Then if you can tie in the story part where you can create like a customer journey map, so you've taken all this feedback and you created a, a map of how, how the product or the process works, that helps for the person that's, that clues into stories. Um, then visually, if you can show like that video, um, people can start to see like, oh, I, I understand, I understand how our, our customer landscape, or you're creating personas, and so that, that also creates stories and also a visual, they can, they can capture the concept. Um, and then the last area is just social, and that's where they can see their, their peers, or they can actually talk to these individuals and get that story. So I think if you address all four of those areas, your, your case, your presentation becomes much stronger. And there's UX tools to address each one of those. So I talked about like a journey map, there's affinity diagrams, uh, there's hierarchy or prioritization exercises you can do when you come to build a roadmap. There's a lot of tools you can do to address the kind of different personalities and how people come to consensus. So the question is, um, even though you have a product roadmap, um, there's issues with recency bias or things kind of throwing it off track, and, and how do you deal with that? We're all over the place. We have so many things that we're working on that sometimes it's like, oh, three months later, oh yeah, I remember we worked on that a while ago. So you're just kind of all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can I ask, like, who prioritizes your, your roadmap? Um, so it's the product chief product officer who does that. Um, but then 
the CEO of say, oh, I heard a, a complaint from a client, so now I'm going to change. Who gives that CEO permission to change the roadmap? Um, <laughs> so sometimes you can help that your chief product officer by just referring back to him and like make him the authority. So if you have one point of authority on making that decision and everyone on the team starts to support that person, then you don't have your little uh, seagulls come in and poop on the project. <laughs> <laughs> But really, like if, if there's one decision maker that can prioritize things, that's it's crucial to a project to keep it focused. And, but if the, the company starts or the, the product team starts to let other people come in and decide, or call them little red lines or shoulder tapping, if you allow that to happen, you'll never get anything done. So you just have to kind of have to kind of force that decision maker to make those decisions and not let other people come in and do that. What about for somebody who doesn't maybe have access, like direct access to that person? What can someone at maybe a junior and mid-level do to make a difference there? Someone's always, always telling you what to do, so. <laughs> I, um, I'm gonna try it because I agree with you. And again, this is the ideal world. And sometimes you have the power to force that. and. This goes a little bit more into product management, but I think it also applies to UX design. Like one of our qualities is we have to learn to say no and we have to stick to our no's. And that's also the hardest part in the job. And <laughs> I see you nodding. <laughs> um, because the next shiny thing is always there. And especially if the CEO is sales driven, especially if there's numbers, especially if somebody feels like, oh, we're gonna lose a customer then very quickly all the roadmaps and everything we talked about is going to be forgotten and, and um, the pulse is just through the roof, especially in smaller companies. Um, I think sometimes you have to roll with it because you don't want to lose your job, but what you can do is in the retrospective ask, how well did we fare with this? How good are we in delivering on time? How well are we doing in the success with our other customers? Like, are the other 95 gonna be okay if this feature falls away? And what does, and maybe ask the question, what is this one customer costing us? Like, and talk to somebody in finance about this because sometimes customers are more expensive to keep than to lose. And sometimes because you know, the energy is high in the, in the spur of the moment. We're looking emotionally at that situation, but when time is gone, we can look a little bit more rational at the situation. So it's hard to change it in the moment, and it's hard to say the, the no always in the moment. But try to instill a, a, pro, a process or a culture of retrospective and looking back and asking those questions and being entrepreneurial, going out of your role and not only ask the questions, um, do we empathize with our customers, but ask the question, how valuable are the customers? Are we serving the 20% customers that are making us 80% of the revenue or are we serving those customers that are actually not making us revenue and profit? And that may be an opportunity, but I'm not gonna lie, there's always gonna be the new shiny thing. <laughs> Um, one thing I would say is, is what are your product metrics um, and are they solid and are you really using those to guide your roadmap? Because 
in organizations I've worked on where the new shiny object wins is usually because the metric is release software, right? And so if that's your lowest criteria and that's kind of the bare minimum, well, it doesn't matter what you release. Releasing anything works. And so whereas if you have a different product metric like adoption and you have been able to build your roadmap saying, through user research, we've identified that these are the things that are going to improve adoption. Now there's a higher bar of getting something on the roadmap. If a new feature comes in, you have to ask, is that going to get us more adoption than the things that are already on the roadmap? So I'd say product metrics. And the other thing is, is saying no is really important. The easiest way to say no is having a bigger and better yes. Um, and so your roadmap, I guess if, if things are winning that are new and shiny, you have to question, are you doing a good job of selling your current roadmap? And is your roadmap backed up in a way with research and has a compelling story? So that when someone comes in and says, hey, I want this, new shiny objects, and you say, okay, you can have that, but you have to give up this, that they have to kind of have that conversation and that internal battle. I've been able to win a lot of war battles when someone comes in and says, you know, customer X is one of our biggest customers, they need this, and they say, yeah, but I've got 20 customers, here's their ARR, that need this. So would you like to go talk to those 20 customers and tell them no? Because I've actually already communicated yes to them. <laughs> so those are kind of the conversations you have to have. They're hard conversations, not easy, but uh, those are two things I've found. So the question is, um, fostering relationships is important, and um, how do you choose uh, performance versus uh, relationships? Is that yeah, I think they're both relevant. So both like relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How you how do you prioritize? I think. I think you're right. You know, both are extremely important. Um, you know, I think that. Let me think about this for one second. Okay. Sorry. While you're thinking. Yeah. I'm actually curious. Let's do a poll while you're thinking. Who thinks that performance is the the factor that should drive more? Who thinks it's relationships? <laughs> okay, so if you have to choose between um, I'm trying to spend my time in building relationships or I'm trying to spend my time showing performance of UX, which one do you think is the more important one? Is it performance by show of hands? Or is it fostering relationships, building relationships internally? That's an amazing answer. Do you want to? So, <laughs> she, she was just saying that if your performance is excellent, then that's essentially building those good relationships. Yeah, I 100% agree with that um, comment. You know, so next question. <laughs> um, no, but really, you, I, in my personal opinion, okay, take it for what it's worth, I, I feel like if I have a great relationship, my performance is excelling. If I have a great performance and I'm, you know, delivering and I'm, I'm exceeding expectations, then my relationships are growing, right? And at least in the companies that I've worked for, um, I've been able to reach higher and higher up, um, basically the food chain, because of 
my performance, right? I've been able to create relationships based off of that and be able to talk to people based off of that because they then trust, oh, he's been able to do this. I, it maybe it goes back to the seat of the table, right? So it's like they're able to see what you're able to produce, to give, to, and your accomplishments, basically. And at that point, you know, these different, the relationships change. It's like instead of saying, you know, hey, we need that button, or we need to do this, or we need whatever over here, it's like, well, I don't know, let's ask Ben, right? And then at that point, you know, that relationship now has a mutual respect, and I'm able to take UX to that next level in the, you know, in the UX maturity model, because I've built a foundation of performance. At the same time, I'm not being a jerk, I'm not being like, I'm a designer, dude, I know exactly what I'm doing, right? But you're building, you're talking, and you're treating each other with respect, right? And that is what helps grow. So again, I'm gonna reiterate that. I don't feel like you can have one without the other. They're directly relatable. So the question is, which UX process really shows UX maturity, and then which process um, shows kind of the lack of maturity? This is a hard question to answer because part of process is generic, but part of process is also part of culture and very strongly related to the context of the company, how big the company is, um, which play field you're in, what your who your customers are, are you B2B, B2C. I think one thing that came to my mind, boiling it down to the essence is, if you see designers and research involved in a project early on, then you're most likely in a very mature uh, state. And I think that's like the very, very essence that I can boil it down to without being more specific in like, okay, what kind of like standard process do we apply in a certain company? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's as you're saying this, I I like to compare companies to organisms just like human beings, right? When you look at a human a mature human being versus a, a very immature human being, right? A mature human being will look at their mistakes and and learn from their failures, like you know, even a kid, like when they're falling getting back up and they're trying to learn to walk, right? And so I think this is an important point, having retrospectives or or allowing for failure, right? Like we had this thing at one company where we celebrated failures. Now, not stupid mistakes. Where you you take a risk, you take the plunge and it just failed. And it can be okay, right? And, but you learn from it. Why, why won't we do it again this way? So that's an important one. And you can only do that if you allow for retrospectives and if you allow for trust, right? If you allow, if, and then that goes back to relationships. If you have the culture 
that you can be open and vulnerable in that context, then you can learn if, if it's a very cutthroat culture. And those companies thrive too, right? They can be successful too. They're making money too. And they're, they're, it's just a different culture. And that's why now we get into the specifics. Like some things work for a company that don't work for another company because it very much so depends on the culture and the individuals and who the leader is and what their style is. And I wouldn't want to judge one over the other. It's just a different style. I'm going to stop talking. Uh, my last company, I, I probably built out the best design team I've, I've ever had. Um, and part of that was because I let them help build, build the team. And so we would discuss what kind of meetings we needed to hold for their benefit. Um, we actually traveled to a couple of companies, other design teams, and interviewed them. So we'd sit down for an hour with them and just ask, okay, what processes do you have? What, what meetings do you do within your teams? Um, how do you do style guides? How's your, how do you run branding with your marketing teams? Uh, it was fantastic. So we came back with the, as a team and decided that we wanted to have several meetings. We wanted to have one where it was an hour and a half of just critique. And there were certain rules around the critique. Um, everyone had to present. They had a time limit on what they could present. And they had to ask very specifically what feedback they wanted. And you couldn't provide feedback unless it was based on that criteria. Um, we decided we wanted to have product strategy or UX strategy meetings as well. So it wasn't critiquing, but it was figuring out, okay, we're working in different parts of the product and we have some overlap and we have, or we have customers we need to address or needs we need to address. So we'd have strategy meetings. Um, we would do those, we decided to come in earlier in the morning so it'd be more quiet within the company. Um, and so the, and we would change. We'd change about every three months. Say, hey, okay, this meeting's getting a little redundant. We're gonna remove this meeting and do something else. Uh, we try something called design huddles, where you'd meet for 30 minutes with different people, maybe a marketing designer and a product designer would meet together and just go over, just individually, the two of them together, what they were working on. And that, that helped a little bit of cross-collaboration, cross and we would switch up meetings. Um, we design systems, we'd talk about, like, do we need design ops right now, or is that, or can we, like, spread that out around the team? Or do we actually need to make a design ops and a dev ops work together? Uh, I just I made it very democratic so that the team was deciding what we needed, and it, I think the design team just became very strong because of that, uh, because I didn't make all the decisions for them, and I helped build their own leadership and management skills as well. Okay, I just want to build on that because I love what you said when you actually went out and had your UX team talk to other companies about what they're doing, um, just to kind of give you. I have three companies in the valley that I think are doing a really good job, and it's kind of they've created their own processes. Um, one that you're familiar with, Plural Sites Directed Discovery. It's great. Canopy, they have a theory-driven um, design process they've created. And Grow, which is in this building, has a process they call POF. Now, they've all named them, and you know, but they've actually owned them. And they've actually, if you look at them and you break them apart, there's pieces uh, that you could find out on the internet. But um, that's one thing I, I think is such an, a critical thing that we, um, I would recommend everyone to do. Go online, find somebody from one of these organizations, go out to lunch with them and talk to them about their process. I, I remember going out with Lucid, one of the UX designers at Lucid, and they talked about, um, they have a thing called Bill of Goods, and it was to help transition the UX design to the development team. And so they write up this Bill of Goods and they, they hand it off, I stole it, I love it. Um, and it, I think that's what we need to do more in the Valley, because there are incredible ideas throughout the Valley um, but they kind of get isolated in, in the kind of the orgs, and it's not until somebody actually leaves one of those organizations and goes into another organization that we start uh, perpetuating some of these great ideas. So I love that. 
So I just kind of want to add on to that, though. Um, <clears throat> and just taking a little bit of a different approach. So, you know, you can't just take what's working at Grow. You can't take what's working at Pluralsight or what are these other companies. You use that as like a foundation. Like, oh, I like that idea, right? But you need to take the responsibility of listening to your own company and saying, what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to solve as a company unit, not only for customers, but what are we trying to solve for inside? And then having that knowledge and bringing that knowledge to the table so that you can then form a new process. I always think it's funny when people are like, you know, when uh, people say, oh, you know, it's just, what UX process do you do? I don't know, I made it up, right? And it's because it's true, you, you make up a lot of it because you're tailoring it to fit um, the company. It's like, you know, I'm, if you have a kid, I'm not gonna raise this kid the same as this kid. He has his own emotions, his own uniqueness to him, right? And same with a company. So when you're talking about maturity inside of a company, you really have to pay attention to that, to the nuts and bolts and the uniqueness of your company, and then looking outside and saying, Man, I loved what they did there. Would that fit here? Sure, it could. Maybe I have to tailor it a little bit more and make it a little bit mine, but you know, that, that was an awesome thing, and I love that. I think that there needs to be more sharing amongst us instead of being like, oh, I'm gonna keep my secrets myself, you know? But if we're out there and we're, we're sharing what we're doing and the processes that are working for our company and the successes that we're having inside of that, I think will help the UX community as a whole um, really start gaining that true momentum that we're trying to really achieve. Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, I love what you said. Thank you for that, Kaiba, because that's true. I don't want to take any verbatim process. You can't take any of those processes and just implement them. They'll fail. Um, taking it down to an individual level, um, I always ask people in an interview, like a UX interview, tell me about your process. And you know, they'll walk me through an IDEO process or a double diamond process. Um, and then I'll actually always challenge them and say, well, what if, how long does that usually take? And they'll say maybe three weeks. And I say, if you had to do it in a week, what would you cut? How would you cut it? Um, what's important, what's not? And you can really tell the maturity of a UX designer that understands why they're doing what they're doing um, and the value of each one of the artifacts and exercises. Um, and they can say, you know what, in this scenario for this project, I'm not gonna do my A to Z process. I might just do a few of them. And so I think that's an important thing individually that you have to understand. It goes also back to talking about UX maturity. When you don't have a very UX, uh, mature UX culture, you're not gonna get the time and resources that you would like to do. Maybe a Google design sprint full week, right? You're not gonna get the executives or stakeholders to spend a week with you. Sorry. So figure out how to do it um, and get some smaller wins. Figure out what pieces of your process are the most critical re to reduce risk and make sure you're successful and implement those. And then when you get those ones, you can start adding to that, so. So what are the specific skills and attributes that you try to help more junior people on the team grow, right? Um, I've set up a couple of apprentice programs at different companies I've worked at, because um, I think that's kind of fun to have someone come in fairly new and, and watch them succeed, just uh, kind of blow everyone away with their success. Um, but the trick is like not, well, giving them a little bit of responsibility in the beginning and then growing it as they succeed. Uh, and as, if, they, if they fail, like give them a soft cushion, but make their failures a little bit harder every time. 
because eventually they'll get to the point where they can pick themselves up and learn from that failure. But the beginning, it's gonna, it's gonna shake them. So um, skills I see that they need to learn, it's, it's being confident in their own design abilities and realizing like there is no right design. It's just, it's going forward and being confident in what they're doing. And then the next stage is, is being able to present that with confidence and getting buy-in from other people. And so in the beginning, I'll let them design and I'll present because they're, because they're not confident in that presentation yet. And then the next project, they need to present their skills. So I've shown them how to do it and then they do it next. And so I just, I build that. I'll show, I'll do an example and then let them do it next. And, as they, and then they build to a point where they're, they're running the entire development team. They've, they've got sprints running, uh, user stories going, prototypes running, user testing. I, st I build those skills so they're very self-sufficient by the time the apprenticeship is done. I, I love doing that because they, they usually leave me for a bigger, better job. <laughs> um, or I hire them fast enough that I can keep them within the company. So the question was, how do you, um, how do you, when a feature is released and it's a big one for product, but maybe not UX as a whole, how do you take a kind of a step back and how do you anticipate the questions that are going to come from that? Oh, I would set up some user tests pretty quickly and make sure the people that are really bought into that's their solution, make sure they see people using that solution. Uh, yeah, I say celebrate their win, man. Um, because I don't think I have all the answers, right? Now, if it means it's a step back, it's almost like I'm gonna take a look into what did I do wrong? Like, what, what made it so that UX didn't have that foothold or that grasp, you know, inside of that arena, like when that was happening, or we left out of a meeting? Like, you really gotta look at the situation as a whole. And were you not loud enough? Were you not advocating enough? Were you, you know, maybe were you too slow on a design or something and they're like, we just have to pop this out. Like, I don't, and you know, maybe they got lucky, right? I don't know. But um, the idea is to be able to um, be big enough to own that and, and own and use that as a learning um, for you and say, okay, what can we do better for next time um, in this situation or flip, you know, do what Annie said and say, well, let's just go out and test it. Maybe it works, but if it didn't work, okay, I'm not going to rub it in your face that it didn't work. I'm going to come to you with a new solution and saying, hey, we kind of missed the mark here, but this allowed me to do a little bit more um, testing on that. Here's a new proposed solution for it. Hopefully we can run with it. Sometimes you can, but the point is, is that take that, own it, figure out where something happened, what went wrong, or whatever the case might be, right? Move forward. So what are some ways other than going out to lunches with people in the community to gauge your UX maturity? To gauge a company's UX maturity. Oh, to gauge a company's UX if maturity. If, oh, if you're looking for like a new job at a company. So during the interview process, yeah. like, what yeah. kind of questions might you ask to yeah. gauge it? You know, you can just turn around what he does and ask, what is your design process? And what do you do if you have to cut it short? And how do you cut it short? I think you can, this is actually a really good question and you can just turn it around. And I think it's totally fair to interview the company just as much as they are interviewing you. Like, 
this is a mutual relationship that you're entering into when you work somewhere. It's not like you're you're going there and you're like asking for a job and thank you so much that I get it. It's like you have something to bring to the table and you bring some knowledge in there. And so you're allowed to gauge who they are and what their culture is. So try to find, use your UX and empathy skills and use your research skills to ask those questions and figure out, okay, if I want to know what kind of culture they have here, what is a question I can ask? Like, how do you deal with failures? Tell me about the most recent project that failed and what did you do? Tell me about your most recent win and how did you celebrate it? Tell me, tell me about um, how do you how do you do critical feedback or what's your how do you give feedback here? Right, and all those like you can find questions that are acceptable that you can ask and kind of like poke into and see, okay, how do you deal with these situations? And is that something that I feel I can add value to that? Because either there's something not there yet, or is there something what, where I can learn? Whenever I interview for a company, these are the two only questions I want to know. Is there something I can bring to the table that they don't have that's of value for them? And is there something I don't have that I can learn and if I go out of here has made me grow? So. so the question is, how do you keep your design thinking fresh kind of among the whole product team so you don't get kind of stuck in the box of the product you're, you've been working on? I can't say I do this very often, but I, um, I, it's something that I've seen it happen. Um, I know like Wade at Workfront, he, um, he takes his team and they go glass blowing. Um, or they'll go, I've heard of um, UX teams go and go through a violin factory downtown. Um, go do pottery, um, go outside of your normal creative world and it kind of flex those creative muscles in a different way. Um, maybe you're not gonna get inspired on what your next you know, interface is gonna look like, but um, I think that that's a, a really creative, it's a great team building um, and it's a way to get out of the four walls and maybe break some of the, that rut you're in. I think that's a great solution and adding to that, um, Limitations foster creativity. So put artificial limitations. Tell yourself, for this specific challenge, I'm not gonna use my design system. I'm not allowed to use the colors that I usually use. I'm not allowed to use the tools that I usually use. And now you're forced to think outside of the box. That means you have to take that time and you have to kind of have the culture again and the understanding of your leadership that they give you that time. Um, but maybe make it a game or, you know, sometimes it's okay to do it after work, you know, and because it will enrich your life and as a designer or, or as a product manager, and there's always something you can get out of it. You're here right now, right? So this is amazing. Yeah, I think there's lots of fun activities you can go do. Like you can go take down all the lost pet signs and redesign them so they look good and then post them back up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I made my team hike Timpanogos one time. <laughs> that, was, that was a good team building exercise. They had to do hard things. And so if you come back and do hard things in the office. Um, I took a chocolate making class. There's, yeah, there's like glass blowing. Um, sometimes we would take like one of our critiques, we would not critique, but we would design like a really random app, like a, a cattle rancher app. So. <laughs> or some kind of weird challenge, like, or take the, our interview questions, we'd like have to do them ourselves. <laughs> um, yeah, 
I think doing activities, hiking, getting some fresh air. Um, I think all those are great. You know, one of the activities that my, um, when I was at uh, architectural firm, he would have us do um, was we'd have to go and take pictures, right, of shadows, of trees, of leaf, of twigs, right? Because when you, we got into master planning a neighborhood, we wanted, we kept looking at um, the same layout. You know, if if I have an entrance here, I'm gonna have an exit here. I'm gonna have this here, right? And you get in the mode of like, okay, I'm just gonna put a sidewalk over here, maybe a park right here, and then. Uh, to get out of that mindset, to kind of like reset, we had to go and explore things that were contrary to what we were trying to do, right? <clears throat> and looking at the abstract, so that when we came back, we had fresher eyes and like, oh my gosh, this thing that I saw over here, maybe it's even a color, right? It allowed us to get back into that, that product or to that neighborhood design or whatever we were doing and look and say, Man, I remember when I was looking at this light post, it cast this type of shadow. That would be really swell if we had an idea like that over here, right? And so taking what you're used to, but then doing something drastically of a negative of it, right, will can really help you just rejar and bring that fresh new look back to your product. So the question is, how do you get beyond just focusing on maybe one page of a product and look at the whole picture, the full customer experience. I keep wanting to, to snag yours. <laughs> um, this is a hard question and a very easy question because why have you ever only looked at one page in the first place? Now, yes, the, it's easy for me to say um, but really, this is what happens at a lot of big companies, right? Everybody, like, we're so split up and like the Tayloristic approach of like everybody has their own little thing that they're responsible for and that's what they can influence. This is how they get measured. And because they're only getting measured at that very specific local point, nobody looks at the whole experience. Some companies, since we're talking about maturity right now, some companies are more mature and they have departments that are set up to be cross. Uh, companies that are more mature usually have their, their goals, targets, KPIs linked to each other so that when you miss the mark here, the influence over here is going to be shown. And it goes a little bit back to your question earlier with like, okay, we're celebrating the win of the one button, but we really have messed up the whole process. I mean, one thing you can do is like, how do you test your success? Do you look, is your test case, the whole onboarding experience, including then buying the product, using it, and maybe even getting rid of it? Or is your test case, could they click the button? And was it fast enough? Could they find it, right? And so I think, again, it goes back a little bit to the culture and the, the question of how do we look at our business? And Sometimes this is hard and frustrating when you're the UX designer on product team Z and you don't have that influence. But maybe you can make that test and maybe you can record this user test and maybe you can share it with someone or you can make, like 
we're talking about experience and experiences. How does somebody feel as they're doing this? So put them in the shoes of the customers. A lot of times what happens in companies is the senior management and even your product manager doesn't even have time to experience and be the customer. So make everybody be the customer. And then these things actually, sometimes they're so glaring, they will just like, they will hurt when you go through it. I was, when I started working in product, I kept saying, and I was an email, which is like a commodity product, right? So I kept saying, if it doesn't hurt, it's a good experience. If you're not having a headache using it, it's a good experience. And I think this is still true in a sense. Like if you're trying to get healthcare and you, I'm from Germany, it was really hard and really nerve wracking to understand the system here in the first place, mind you using it online. And it's scary, there's a lot of risk involved. So can you de-risk this for your user? And I think it's really in like, how do you test for it? How do you ask the right questions? How do you hone in? And how do you bring that back into your company? Have lunch meetings, invite everybody to eat pizza and let them watch those videos that we've taken with the users as they were struggling. It's nothing more powerful than observing a user struggling. When you have a discussion with an engineer and you're like, I don't want to code this, this is stupid. Like, well, you go and you watch the user struggle. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that makes total sense. Please let me do that. <laughs> so I don't know, I hope this answers your question a little bit. I've got three ways you could um, help innovation come into your product or your company. Um, and they're, di they're different amounts of time commitment. So one is the journey map I talked about where you're going through not your product, but the user's journey and you might have multiple users. So any kind of touch point this person is, happy, is having to get to the end product. And you wanna take some time to go research your competitors, research the market, watch users actually go through this. So it's based on actual evidence, not on your perception on what's happening. And build it out, print it out. You can do this at, at FedEx um, or Alpha Graphics, and it's like 80 cents a foot, it's really cheap. Just print it out on like an architectural paper. And then have your company come up and just walk through this journey and then add places where you've missed until you build out this complete map of your customer, how they're getting to your product, or not your product specifically, but a product similar to, similar to your market. Um, that one's time consuming. That's several weeks of time, and you, but that gets a lot of consensus and a lot of visibility. Uh, the next step would be um, you could do role playing. It's, it's just a, it's a, a product walkthrough, your own product. You can use a little Lego people to represent the different users but have them like actually walk through the product, like end to end. Um, and that's, that's really good when you've got people that are just very blind to how your product works together or the pain points. Um, and the next one is, and this one's very quick, it can take just two or three hours, design the worst possible experience you could possibly design. And you'll look back and say, oh, that's what our product does already. <laughs> uh, but once you get everyone in the room or your team to like admit that you're doing some things that are very bad, like anti-user experience, then it, because it becomes easier to decide on how to prioritize, uh, how to make it better. I think this is great, and I actually love the way you structure your answers. I can learn so much from you. <laughs> um, one thing for Sears, though, because I think Sears is an example of a whole different problem. It's the problem of, I've seen, I, I've seen success with one thing, and so I become blind to the change that I need to do and the growth. Because change, 
and that's kind of in a human psyche a little bit, it's hard to change if you don't have to. We're all staying in our comfort zone. It goes a little bit back to your question, how, how do I not get like so boxed in? It's, it's, a, similar, it's a similar question. How do, I, how do I don't fall into the Sears trap if I'm a company? It's really hard. It's by bringing in new people, by allowing new people to have different opinions and state them. And it goes back to even having interns. I, I think interns, I, I want to, you are the future leaders and you'll be able to create internship programs. Bring interns into your company because they usually have a, a fresh perspective. They use tools that you don't use. They have success with things that you don't even know about and they will give you that inspiration. And then it's again part of the culture to allow to foster that and sometimes it works from the ground up like there is a lot of times if you can show success little successes you can build trust and that is what allows you to build relationships and then all of a sudden you're showing up on the map and then you can you know not become Sears but Amazon or whatever the next big thing is. Awesome. Way to tie it all together. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody. Um, I think we should give them a round of applause. Um, and as Mike mentioned earlier, there's a question answer Slack channel on Product Hive. So anything that maybe you thought of but didn't ask or comes up on your drive home, uh, feel free to post it in there. And we can have some good discussions. Okay, I'll just add one more thing. Can I just add one word? Wow. <laughs> I mean, and, and thank you to our video team back there. So this will obviously be on the Product Hive YouTube channel as well as the podcast. So if you were furiously trying to write down all of this stuff and you're like, oh, I missed that thing, uh, this will be posted on the YouTube channel as well. So, and I'm, you know, a lot of people, we, we try and keep these numbers to this group where we can have a chat like this. And so, um, I appreciate you coming tonight. I appreciate you having these discussions with them. I've talked to them earlier, and I want you all to have that, that comfort level where you know you can reach out to them and continue these conversations. As Sun mentioned, we, we're the, this is the future of product, this community we're building where we're sitting down at lunch and bringing other teams in. This is the future. We are facilitators of diverse and creative thinking in our organizations, and so we have to do that as a community. Um, so let's just give our video team a round of applause too for setting this all up. A big thanks to our panelists, Sun Sneed, Ben Hunt, Emmy Southworth, John Grover, and Megan Fisher. And again to Canopy Tax for hosting the event. If you learned some things from this discussion, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.